Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret welcome Dr. Bashara Shukair, coordinator of vaccinations at the White House. Dr. Shukair is overseeing the most massive vaccine effort in history, leading President Biden's promise to put 200 million doses of COVID-19 in the first 100 days into Americans. Lori Robertson also checks in. The managing editor of factcheck.org looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Bashara Shukir here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Dr. Bashara Shukara, vaccination coordinator at the White House under President Biden. He recently served as senior VP for community health and chief health officer at Kaiser Permanente. Dr. Shukara also has served as the commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health, where he initiated data-driven innovations to address the social determinants of health. Dr. Shukara, we welcome you today to Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thank you so much for having me here. It's, uh, I'm really thrilled. Well, that's great. You know, when we're witnessing the most uh, massive vaccination effort in history. I think when President Biden first came to office, he said he was going to have vaccines, to over 100 million vaccines. And along that journey, he doubled the amount in his first 100 days. And uh, he just announced that uh, all Americans would be vaccine eligible by April 19th moving that date up from May 1st. I wonder if you could just take our listeners behind the scenes and help us understand how the president's whole government strategy has been deployed to meet this quest to vaccinate everyone in the country. Well, of course. Well, let me uh, first off start by sharing some top line numbers. 11 weeks ago, the US was averaging less than 1 million vaccinations per day. Our current seven-day average is over 3 million vaccinations per day. And this weekend, we've reported for the very first time ever, 4 million shots reported administered in one day. Um, As of today, we've administered over 168 million doses as a country. And for people 65 and older, where we know 80% of the deaths from COVID is happening, more than 75% of people 65 and older have had at least one shot of the vaccine. That's up from 8% 11 weeks ago. So when you look at the number, this is really impressive. And I continue to be in awe on how this country is coming together to get us all vaccinated and getting us past this pandemic. I'm so grateful for the millions of people who are working in every day um, and who are involved in this effort. And when you look at what the vaccination strategy is about. It's really about increasing supply. It's about making sure we have more vaccinators across the country and creating more places for people to get vaccinated. And that's really what we've been focusing on. And when you look at the supply, we've delivered um, about 90 million doses in the last three weeks when when you look at it. 
And we continue to work with states, with tribes, with territories, with pharmacies, with community health centers and others to create more and more places for people to get vaccinated. And all along, equity is at the center of all this work. Well, we have certainly taken note that the Biden administration has been very clear about uh, being focused on making sure the nation's most vulnerable populations, those hit hardest by COVID-19, uh, are in line to get the resources that they need and to vaccinate the country's most vulnerable populations. And we understand uh, now that vaccines uh, will be made available to all community health centers uh, who have a particular focus on that. I know you have a history with community health centers uh, and that they will be part of that solution. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this new development and, and the role that community health centers are playing today in addressing health disparities, which have certainly been amplified by the pandemic. Absolutely. And, and back in February, we launched um, the program with federally qualified health centers to allocate vaccines directly to them uh, through the federal government. And this is an integral part of our equity efforts that's focused on those who are not underserved, those who are hardest hit. And this effort around equity includes many more aspects to it as well, like our community vaccination centers, mobile clinics, building vaccine confidence. And I know both of you are national leaders in the community health center movement. I, you know, I'm a family physician. I had the opportunity to train in a community health center. I was a medical director of a community health center. I was an executive director. So I know how relevant this work is and how much of an added value community health centers offer across the country, particularly when it comes to the equity issues. You know, there are about 1,400 mm -hmm. or so uh, federally qualified health centers across the country. They serve almost 30 million people, two-thirds of whom are living at or below the federal poverty level, 60% of whom are racial and ethnic minorities. So when we started this program, we were really focusing on this population to make sure they have access to the vaccine. And we started with about 250 or so of these federally qualified health centers. In the second phase, we've added 700 more uh, federally qualified health centers who got invited to participate. And we're sending the invitation to the remaining federally qualified health centers and lookalike community health centers to participate in this program. And I have to tell you um, uh, both, I had the opportunity to go last Friday and spend time at one of these pop-up clinics that were done by uh, La Clinica, which is a federally qualified mm -hmm. health center in the East Bay here in California, and to get to see the passion, the commitment, this effort that's bringing so many people together to make an impact in people's lives is truly heartwarming. Um, and on top of that, um, as we all know, a couple of weeks ago, we announced a $6 billion investments in community health centers across the country as part of our um, American Rescue Plan to support testing, to support treatment, to support vaccinations, as well as expanding the health center's operational capacity uh, during this pandemic and beyond. So I continue to be a uh, big fan of the community health centers across the country and grateful for the tens of thousands of people who run and participate in supporting people in these community health centers, particularly with that equity focus. 
Well, and, and that's such an important investment by the Biden administration and well appreciated. You know, I, I really liked your three pillars. You want to increase supply, increase vaccinators and uh, more places for folks to get vaccines. But I do want to sort of talk about the issues around vaccine production. 62 million Johnson & Johnson vaccines are being examined with for possible contaminants at uh, emergent, the same plant where 15 million vaccines were scrapped last week for contamination with components of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And the CDC has halted AstraZeneca's vaccine production at the same facility due to ongoing concerns. Obviously, big implications for the president's target if, if supply chains get disrupted. I'm wondering if you could address some of these ongoing challenges. Well, let me just start by emphasizing that no vaccine that was manufactured at the Baltimore facility has been used in any U.S. vaccinations efforts so far because that facility hasn't been authorized by the FDA. Mm-hmm. So all the vaccines that the J&J vaccines that's out, that's in the public, that's been administered, did not come out of that facility. Um, now, as you all know, J&J now is installing a new senior leadership team to oversee all aspects of production and manufacturing at the emergent facility and will have full responsibility for the operations, production, and manufacturing of the facility. And as a company, they'll continue to work with the FDA on addressing any type of manufacturing issues and no product will come out of the Baltimore facility without uh, full authorization by the FDA. And this is a critical part of ensuring Um, quality and safety of vaccine product. And we also heard from J&J that they do not expect that this to impact their overall commitment to provide nearly 100 million doses of vaccines by the end of May. So we are still on track to have enough vaccine supply for all adults by the end of May. Well, Dr. Shakir, that is great news. And the focus on vaccines is obviously uh, so vital to success and kind of all consuming. But we want to remember we still need COVID testing, right? And that is still inconsistent in many parts of the country. Some places probably quite easy to access and some not so easy. And it seems like almost from the beginning, we thought we would soon have a rapid test, affordable, easy to use rapid tests, even uh, use at home tests. We still don't have it. We're watching infection rates climb again in many parts of the country, uh, in part driven by the variants. What's your sense of the timeline? Are we going to see some uh, significant progress in this over the coming weeks and months? And as we think about issues of children and the variants, this just seems like a pressing issue. and We're just not sure where things stand now. So shine some light on that for us. Well, let me, uh, let me just start by saying that um, testing continues to be a very important part um, of helping us fight this pandemic. Carol Johnson, my colleague on the White House COVID response team, she's our testing coordinator. She continues to make sure that we continue to focus on, on testing. And there's been significant investments in testing with the $10 billion a commitment that was announced a few weeks ago as part of the American Rescue Plan. Um, there are efforts to increase serial testing. The FDA has uh, been doing a lot more work on testing. And we'd want to continue to encourage people across the country um, to focus on testing as a key strategy to help us beat the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, vaccinations is extremely important. We're really proud of the progress. Meanwhile, we need to continue to focus on testing as well. 
We're speaking today with Dr. Bashara Shuker, vaccination coordinator at the White House under President Biden. You know, congratulations, the U.S. vaccination program is really quite remarkable, especially when it's compared to many parts of the world where it's been erratic or non-existent. And as long as the world remains unvaccinated, I think it's fair to say it's a petri dish for variants to grow in and uh, something of concern. And obviously we've seen that the pandemic's out of control in Brazil, uh, in Europe, in Italy, the surge cases are really being driven by, at least in the Europe side on the B117 variant. I, I believe the CDC just announced it's the most prevalent variant here in the United States. I'm wondering, could you address some of these challenges of how the U.S. is going to help deal with the global supplies that are needed to really to make sure that all of us are safe because we can't be isolated from the rest of the world? Well, let me just start by saying that my role is focused exclusively on our efforts in the United States. We are a country that has suffered over half a million deaths more than any um, uh, country in the world. In the meantime, we have taken significant steps and under the president's direction, the United States um, has re-engaged with the World Health Organizations on day one. Uh, we have committed to providing the most funding to COVAX of any other country in the world with $4 billion. And this gives money to developing countries to purchase a vaccine. We also announced with our quad partners that we are working to achieve expanded manufacturing of safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines at facilities in India, and this boosts production globally. So a lot of work has happened and more will happen along the line. Well, that's so important. And while we're uh, looking at all the uh, accomplishments and the, uh, the things we can look forward to in the future, we note that the American Rescue Act also is making big investments in public health and supporting public health and addressing issues that drive health inequity, uh, even without the issue of the pandemic. We'd love for you to highlight some of uh, the transformation initiatives in the Rescue Act that, that you think uh, as a public health person hold some promise for really improving public health and helping to reduce health equity in our country, even beyond the pandemic, which someday will be over. Well, th thank you, Margaret, for, for bringing that up. And, and on the uh, American Rescue Plan, let me highlight maybe three of the many ways that the American Rescue Plan is, uh, is supporting uh, public health. Uh, first, as I previously mentioned, uh, there are literally billions of dollars in funding for community health centers. The, uh, we've already announced $6 billion in investments, but there's a total of $7.6 billion. Um, and in that pot that's uh, dedicated to community health centers that we know are a cornerstone of reaching underserved populations in this country. So we know these dollars will go to expand access for vaccine, expand access for testing, treatment, uh, preventive and primary healthcare services to people at high risk of COVID-19, as well as expanding the um, health center's operational capacity during the pandemic, and as you've said in your questions, even beyond, beyond the pandemic. The other example I want to lift up is the $7.6 billion that are available to expand the public health workforce. Um, I think all of us agree that the public health workforce has been severely underfunded for decades, and we really need to expand capacity to prepare for and prevent future pandemics. 
and to do so in, in a way that brings in people from the communities that have been hit hardest uh, by this pandemic. And then the last example I'll highlight is the $3 billion in CDC funds to states and large cities that were announced recently. This mm -hmm. funding will be a way to bring community-based organizations and faith-based organizations into the work of public health when it comes to um, responding to this pandemic, but it also helped build relationships that will endure beyond this pandemic and can help address some of the chronic conditions that many people in this country are facing um, um, who don't have adequate care to um, adequate access to healthcare services. So um, it's a lot there that I'm really excited about. I do wanna point out the one key aspect of um, the work that's really about building vaccine confidence that we're seeing. And mm -hmm. we know that doctors and nurses play a huge role. Um, they're the most trusted when it comes to uh, messaging around mm -hmm. vaccine confidence. And we want to make sure that we're leveraging that voice. We're bringing more people into uh, what we've announced last week around the COVID Community Corps, uh, which is a set of trusted messengers across the country that are stepping up and helping us deliver the messages about um, the safety of the vaccine, the importance of vaccination. So I'm hoping that many of the listeners would be interested in stepping up and be part of this um, COVID community core and help us deliver the right messages to their friends, family, and community contacts as well. Wonderful. Well, that's a great clarion call and the American Rescue Act is breathtaking in its scope and its vision. You know, I wanna focus a little bit now on this race that we're having between the vaccine and the variants. And I talked earlier about the B117 uh, being now the dominant strain in the United States. And it seems to be more contagious, more lethal, highly transmissible, also really uh, impacting younger populations. I'm wondering what your sense of the likelihood of the vaccine efficacy persisting against these rising strains. Any sense, and in, in, it sounds like you're building a, an infrastructure that will uh, address the uh, boosters if, if they're going to be required. And, and what are the plans for scaling up or any additional scaling up might be needed if a booster is required? Well, um, thank you for the question, Mark. And, and let me just start by saying that we are very much in a race against the variants that we're seeing across the country. And what we know is that the same set of mitigation efforts that work for the wild type of the virus work for the variants. So first off, now is not the time to loosen restrictions on mitigation measures like masking and social distancing and others. We have made, um, as a country, we have made so much progress over the last few weeks, and we have to keep making gains and pushing the numbers of new cases down. You know, a base of 60,000 cases per day is still way too high for us yeah. to let our guards down. And that's why the president has been very clear by calling on governors, mayors, to make sure that we're doubling down on those mitigation efforts. We keep our masking mandates. We reinstate them if we drop them. Now is absolutely not the right time to uh, uh, put our guard down. At the same time, we have to continue to push our vaccination efforts forward. We're making tons of progress. I've mentioned this a little earlier. Now we're doing on average 3 million shots mm -hmm. per day, and we have to continue to do that. So we have to win this race, and I'm grateful for everybody that's being part of this effort across the country. Meanwhile, the government has a role, 
at all different levels. And individually, we have a role to make sure that we continue to mask up, make sure we continue to keep social distancing, wash our hands, avoid travels, and be able to stay safe in the next few weeks as we build up immunity across the country. Hey, just on the side, vaccine uh, passports, I know the White House came out the other day and not something they're going down. Any sense of, uh, certainly in the private sector, we're seeing in Israel that they have uh, adopted that. Does it make sense uh, for businesses and others who want to do that if, if it's done outside of the government here? Well, I mean, let me uh, let me be clear. The government is not now, nor will be, yeah. supportive of a system that requires people to carry a credential. There will be no federal vaccinations databases and no federal mandate requiring uh, folks to obtain a single vaccination credential. Uh, but we know that these tools are being considered by the private, not-for-profit sectors, and we uh, want to make sure that our uh, voice is there. Our interest is fairly simple. We'd want to make sure that we're protecting the privacy and rights of people living in this country so these systems are not used against people unfairly. That is really our position on vaccine uh, credentialing at this point. And I think that's a great message for the American public to hear. Absolutely. So thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Dr. Bashara Shukar, COVID-19 vaccination coordinator at the White House under President Biden. Learn more about his vitally important work by going to buildbackbetter.gov or follow him on Twitter at Shukar, that's C-H-O-U-C-A-I-R. Dr. Shukar, we wanna thank you for all that you've done in your work to date uh, to contribute to healthcare, to public health, and for really making this huge, uh, huge step forward in helping us defeat the COVID pandemic and for instilling confidence in public health in the United States. Thank you for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for hosting me. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Laurie, what have you got for us this week? A Food and Drug Administration presentation on monitoring the safety of COVID-19 vaccines listed possible adverse events the agency might track, but an Instagram post misrepresents the document, falsely claiming it shows the vaccines are known to cause harmful side effects, including death. It's just one example of misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccines that is circulating on social media. The popular Instagram post cites a government document to falsely claim that federal officials know that the COVID-19 vaccines cause death and other dangerous side effects. But the post is wrong. The FDA presentation it cites, which is publicly available, doesn't say that. And there is no evidence that the COVID-19 vaccines have caused any deaths. The FDA presentation was given at an October 30th meeting of a CDC advisory committee. The presentation outlined a variety of ways that FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research would monitor vaccine safety once COVID-19 vaccines were available. One slide in the presentation showed a, quote, working list of possible adverse event outcomes. These are outcomes the FDA could possibly monitor once a vaccine was authorized. 
Daniel Salmon, director of the Institute for Vaccine Safety at Johns Hopkins University, told us officials develop a list of adverse events to monitor in order to proactively ensure the vaccine rollout is safe. And there's a difference between a report of an adverse event following immunization and an adverse event caused by the vaccine, he said. Anyone can submit a report of an adverse event that occurred after immunization through the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. With more than 109 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines administered in the U.S. as of March 15th, the CDC received 1,913 reports of deaths that took place after someone received a vaccine. And on March 15, the CDC said that none were linked to the vaccination. Quote, a review of available clinical information, including death certificates, autopsy, and medical records, revealed no evidence that vaccination contributed to patient deaths. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Students of public health are often tasked with devising interventions for addressing some of health's biggest challenges. And for Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health students Dan Wexler and Priya Patel, their idea netted an award and launched a business idea at the same time. The students were tasked with addressing food insecurity in underserved parts of the world, including in neighborhoods in their own backyard, families living in high poverty, low resource area, in finding fresh, affordable, healthy food in neighborhoods with no grocery stores or food markets. They thought of the current trend of healthy mail-order meals services like Blue Apron and wondered, what if we modified that business model to serve the needs of those living in food deserts? Wexler and his partner sourced food delivery companies that could provide prepackaged meal kits with all ingredients included, even spices, dressings, and recipes. And instead of home delivery approach, they designed refrigerated kiosks that could easily be placed in local neighborhoods. Wexler says they wanted to make the idea of healthy eating and meal preparation as simple as possible. I think the biggest change is that there is no delivery system door-to-door per se, and that by going and setting up these kiosks in the community, you can have a very lean design. You can have, you don't need a storefront, you don't need to pay for shipping, you don't need to have inbox refrigeration, and you are very much addressing the need of access by physically saying, hey, Here is healthy food. It's convenient because everything you need is in the box. The directions are simple and very picture-based. There's a lot of literacy issues. And so just really thinking about how can we take all those lean design principles to facilitate access that really, uh, I think, make it a, a solution that has the potential for impact. And they also conducted research with local ethnic groups to create recipes that would resonate with their families. And we just went down to the community and did taste testing at the farmer's market and talked to people and said, you know, do you like this? What do you want to be able to eat for dinner? How do you want to cook? So basically we have some dishes that are similar, similar textures, similar spices. Uh, One thing that we found is there's a little bit of contention between 
parents who want to eat more traditional foods and kids who want to eat more American foods. And we try to alleviate that and bridge those gaps. So one of our recipes, for instance, is a chicken pot pie pasta. So it's kind of American. It's fun sounding, but also we use a lot of traditional seasonings and spices. Customers can simply walk to the kiosk and purchase their meal kits with the snap cards or cash. And they added benefits. The kiosk will be run by the residents of the neighborhood, giving them an opportunity to purchase the kiosk and run them like a franchise, offering an economic benefit to the community as well. Their idea earned them the Rabobank MIT Food and Agro-Business Innovation Prize and $15,000 in startup money to launch their enterprise. A low-cost, portable, healthy meal service placed in portable kiosk in food desert neighborhoods, offering families a simple solution to address the problem of poor nutrition, providing an economic opportunity at the same time. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.